It's been said that the devil's cleverest ploy is to persuade people he doesn't exist. There's a lot of truth in that. If Satan can get people to underestimate him or even discount him entirely, then he can get away with a lot. But on the other hand, maybe the devil's second cleverest ploy is to persuade people he has more power than he really does. If he can't make people ignore him, he'll try to terrify them and make them in awe of his strength. So it's worth asking, where do you and I fall on this? Well, maybe before we started reading Revelation, some of us were complacent about Satan. It could be that we live day to day without giving him a thought. But maybe as we've gone through Revelation over these past months, maybe reading Revelation has changed that for you. Maybe you've become more sensitive to Satan's activity in this world. And that's a good thing. But it can be dangerous too. We can end up giving Satan more credence than he deserves. So it's helpful to recognize Satan is a real enemy. It's helpful to be alert for his tricks. But we mustn't forget he's an already defeated enemy. Yes, he is filled with fury, we're told. But in boxing terms, he's down and he'll soon be out. I mention this because this morning we come to Revelation chapter 20. And part of the passage we're going to look at is the most disputed in the whole of this book. Through the years there's been strong disagreement about what some of these verses are telling us. But before we think about the disagreement, I think all interpreters would agree These verses are here to put Satan in his place. Whatever else they may or may not tell us, and whoever people might disagree about some of the details here, I think this passage is here for one main reason. It's here to give us greater confidence that the arch enemy of God and his people is not an enemy God's people are to fear. Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 to 10 shows us the dragon is down and he will finally be out. So turn to Revelation 20 if you haven't already done so. It's page 1248 in the church Bible or in the large print Bibles 1936. Let's read verses 1 to 10. John writes, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient snake, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. 
After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is God's word. I said part of this passage is the most disputed in the whole book. And the dispute centers on the thousand years that are mentioned here. This period is referred to five times in the first six verses. So it's not a passing mention. It's obviously pretty important for understanding verses one to six. So before we go through the passage, we need to think about how we're to understand the thousand years. And the first thing to be said is that most commentators agree the thousand years is a symbolic period of time. We've seen that's how numbers work in the book of Revelation. And if we compare it to the other time periods in the book, it's pretty clear the thousand years is symbolic for a long period of time. Earlier in the book, we've heard about things that last one hour. That's the shortest period of time in the book. We've also heard about three and a half days, ten days, five months, and 42 months. And at the other end of the scale, we're told the new heaven and earth will last forever and ever. So on that scale, from one hour right up to forever and ever, a thousand years represents a long time compared to this end of the scale, compared to days or months. But it's a long way from the other side of the scale too. It will fall far short of being forever and ever. So if most people agree this represents a substantial period of time, even if in real time it could play out over much more than a thousand years, if there's general agreement about that, where's the disagreement? Well, it basically boils down to this. 
where does this substantial period of time come in relation to chapter 19? Does it come after the events described in chapter 19? After the arrival of Jesus on his white horse? Or is chapter 20 another example of something we've seen before in Revelation? After chapter 19 has shown us the second coming of Jesus at the end of the age, does chapter 20 then rewind and show us more about the events leading up to Jesus' return? That's what people disagree about. Do the symbolic 1,000 years come after Jesus returns and destroys his enemies, or do they come before Jesus returns? Now, there are wise and godly people who are convinced the 1,000 years will come after Christ's return and before the new heaven and earth. They believe there will be some sort of intermediate reign of Christ on this earth before the new heaven and earth begin. But with very sincere respect, I have to say, I just don't think that interpretation works. For one thing, it would be the only place in the entire New Testament where such a thing is even hinted at. And that alone should make us a bit hesitant about the idea. We would expect such a significant thing to be mentioned more than once. But if we leave that problem aside, and if we ignore for the moment the context, in other words, the verses directly before and directly after chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, if we don't worry about the context, then the idea of an intervening period between Christ's return and the new heaven and earth works pretty well. If we look just at these six verses, then a good case can be made that the thousand years are a period after Christ's return. But, and this is a very significant but, if we pay close attention to what comes just before and just after the verses about the thousand years, then the idea that this happens after Christ's return just doesn't hold up. I think we'll see that if we look at the verses just before chapter 20. Chapter 20 talks about Satan not being able to deceive the nations during the thousand years. So let's ask, What state were the nations in at the end of chapter 19? What was left of the nations? The answer is, the nations were dead and being eaten by birds. If chapter 20 follows chapter 19 in time, there are no nations left to be deceived or not deceived. And it doesn't work to say, well, maybe it was just some of the nations that were destroyed. Because what the text actually says is, those who are not in the army of the returning Jesus will be in the army that's destroyed by the returning Jesus. 
In chapter 19, verse 18, the birds are invited to eat the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. And the very last verse of chapter 19, they are pictured doing that. Verse 21 says, After the beast and the false prophet were captured and thrown into the lake of fire, the rest were killed with Christ's sword. And the birds gorged on their flesh. So if the events in chapter 20 follow straight on from the events in chapter 19, then there's no one left to be deceived by Satan and gathered up for another battle against the church. Then if we skip to the end of the verses about the thousand years, if you go just beyond them and look at chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, we do find another description of a battle. But when we look closely at it, we realize it's describing the same battle as the end of chapter 19. Both descriptions come from the same Old Testament passage. Ezekiel's prophecy of a climactic battle at the very end of history. What that tells us is that after the end of chapter 19, the vision rewinds in time. Then chapter 20 gives us one more look at the last battle. We've seen this quite a few times already in Revelation. We're showing certain events from one angle then the tape rewinds to show us the same events from a slightly different angle. And here it's pretty clear what the two different angles are. Chapter 19's description of the last battle focused on the final victory of Jesus Christ. Chapter 20's description of that same battle focuses on the final defeat of Satan. What all of this means is the thousand years mentioned at the beginning of chapter 20 must be referring to the time before the last battle. The time we are living in now. And as we go through these verses, I think we'll see the symbolic thousand years began at Christ's resurrection. So after all that, I think we can be pretty confident verses 1 to 6 describe the thousand years between Christ's resurrection and his return. Having figured that out from the context, now we're ready to look at the passage itself. Verse 1 says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain, He seized the dragon, that ancient snake, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. As we read these verses, they should raise a big question for us. They should cause us to say, hold on. 
I can see how there was no one left alive at the end of chapter 19. So I get the point that chapter 20 is taking us back to an earlier point in time. But if these verses are describing today, how can they say Satan is bound? Does that fit with the rest of the New Testament? Doesn't the New Testament talk about the devil setting traps for people? Doesn't it say he has blinded the minds of unbelievers? And that he prowls around like a roaring lion? Doesn't it call us to take our stand against his schemes? Hasn't Revelation already told us the dragon wages war against the church? So in what sense can he be bound? He doesn't seem very bound. This is important for us to think about because if our interpretation of these verses doesn't agree with the rest of the New Testament, then our interpretation is certainly wrong. And what we can say is the New Testament as a whole tells us Satan is active and dangerous in a whole lot of ways. And at the same time, he is significantly limited in what he can achieve. So alongside the verses we've just mentioned, all those verses that mention Satan's activity, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark record, both of them, Jesus' statement that he came to bind Satan. The word Jesus uses is the same word used here in verse 2. And in the context, Jesus was referring to his work on earth. Work that ended with his death and resurrection. Somehow, that work bound Satan. And then just before Jesus went to the cross, he said in John's gospel, Now, the prince of this world will be driven out. The prince of this world is a reference to Satan. And in the very next verse, Jesus explained what he meant. He said, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So according to the New Testament, yes, Satan is angry today and he's active today. But Jesus' work on earth caused Satan to be in some way bound and in some way driven out. The climax of that was when Jesus was lifted up on the cross. Then a few days later, lifted up to his Father's side in heaven. And today, however active Satan is, he is unable to stop the spread of Christ's kingdom. He's unable to stop the risen Jesus drawing people to himself from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And we've seen the same thing in the book of Revelation already. Chapter 9 told us Satan's forces, however active they are, they're prevented from harming those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. And as the book goes on, it becomes obvious Satan 
can do things to God's people. He can do physical harm to them. Through his representatives, he can bring severe oppression and persecution. But he can't do any eternal harm to the church. And he can't stop Christ building his church. Then further on, Revelation 12 describes Satan being thrown down from heaven. The same word that's used here in verse 3. And in chapter 12, the outcome of that throwing down was that while Satan is filled with fury, while he pursues and wages war against the church, yet he is prevented from overcoming her. In fact, a comparison of chapters 12 and 20 seems to show they are describing the same throwing down of Satan. They're describing it from slightly different perspectives. In chapter 12, you remember, the focus is on Satan losing his access to heaven. He can no longer accuse God's people in God's presence. That's one result of the binding that took place during Jesus' work on earth. Here in chapter 20, we're given another result of the binding of Satan. Verse 3 says, he's thrown down into the abyss to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. We've seen already in this book, the abyss is the realm of the demons. So we're being told, Jesus' death and resurrection not only ended Satan's access to heaven, it also brought Satan's realm under Jesus' authority. And the outcome of that is that the dragon, the ancient snake, is kept from deceiving the nations anymore. What does that mean? It tells us the binding here is a very particular kind of binding. By calling Satan the ancient snake, a link is being made right back to the Garden of Eden. Satan's very first appearance in scripture was in Genesis chapter 3 where he deceived Adam and Eve. But since Jesus' first time on earth, Satan's power to deceive has been restricted. That's the message of verses 1 to 3. And his deceiving power is restricted in two specific ways. First of all, Satan cannot prevent the spread of the gospel. He can't prevent Christ calling men and women from spiritual darkness into spiritual light. Since Christ rose, he has been releasing men and women from Satan's deceiving power. Satan can prowl and rage and do a whole lot of other things. He's not bound in every respect. But the text is telling us he is bound in this very significant respect. He cannot stop the spread of the truth of the gospel. Christ is building his church and Satan can't stop him. 
Then our passage also gives us a second way Satan's deceiving power is being restricted. The end of verse 3 says that after the thousand years, Satan must be set free for a short time. Verses 7 and 8, when we get to them, will tell us what happens in that short time. Satan will be unbound. He will be released from his current restriction. And the result of that will be a worldwide deception. Satan will be allowed to do what he's prevented from doing today. He will be able to gather the nations for one massive coordinated attack on the church. Satan would do that today if he could. But he's being held back from doing it until the full number of God's people has been gathered in. Then he will be unbound to gather the nations against the church. What else goes on during this thousand years? Well, verses 1 to 3 focused on how Satan is restricted today. And now verses 4 to 6 show us how the church triumphs today. Even when it faces Satan's fury. Even when Satan's representatives seem to conquer by putting Christians to death. Verses 4 to 6 show us that even before the new heaven and earth, the church triumphs today. How? It triumphs because those who die in Christ rise to reign with him in heaven. Look again at verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Today, it doesn't often seem that the church is triumphing on this earth, does it? But these verses show us the scene in heaven today. How do we know this is the scene in heaven? We know because throughout this book, that's where God and his attendants have their thrones. Places on earth can be described as Satan's throne. But until the new heaven and earth, thrones related to God are in heaven. And verse 4 confirms these thrones are in heaven. John tells us that seated on the thrones are not bodies, but souls. 
Now the New Testament tells us that when Christ returns, we will be given new resurrection bodies. So what we're being shown here is a temporary situation. It's glorious, but it's temporary. It will give way to perfect glory in the future. But even this temporary glory is amazing. It demonstrates the Apostle Paul's statement that for the Christian to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. If we die before Christ returns, yes, we will have to wait for our new resurrection bodies. But we will wait in style. Notice how this group on the thrones is described. Verse 4 says, they're the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus. Now if those were the only ones sitting on these thrones, it would be a pretty small group. But those words are only the beginning of John's description of those on the thrones. The NIV has a footnote to verse 4 making clear that the group John sees actually includes all believers who have died. After mentioning those who were beheaded, almost as if they have pride of place among this group, he goes on to say, I also saw those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. In Revelation, you either have the mark of the beast or you have the mark of the lamb. And as we've noticed before, this is not a literal mark. The people in these visions have marks symbolizing who they belong to. And showing us everybody serves one of the two. Either the beast or the lamb. So here John is seeing all those who during their lifetime gave their allegiance to the lamb rather than the beast. Verse 5 calls this scene in heaven the first resurrection. It's a genuine resurrection. Because the souls of these believers are not left in some shadowy realm of the dead. That's what the Bible calls Hades. It's where those who die outside of Christ go to wait for the final judgment. But it's not a place for God's people. When they die, they are raised and seated with Christ to wait for judgment day. So this is a significant thing. Verse 6 says, Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Why? Because the second death has no power over them. The second death is the eternal death that comes after physical death. That's what's ahead for all those outside of Christ. We'll hear more about it next week. But here the point is, those who enjoy the first resurrection to life in heaven will never face the second death. It may have seemed that Satan triumphed over them in life, 
They may have died because of their testimony to Jesus. But in fact, those men and women triumphed. They are seated with Christ and reigning with Christ. They're delivered from Satan's attacks. The first resurrection is glorious. And yet, it's not the ultimate resurrection. It's called the first because there's a greater one coming. Then God's people will reign with him on earth, clothed finally in resurrection bodies. Revelation still has plenty to tell us about that. So verses 1 to 6 have described the period of time when Satan is certainly not out, but he is down. He is active and dangerous, but he's also significantly restricted. He can rage and he can make war, but he can't stop the spread of the gospel. He can't harm the souls of God's people. And he can't gather the nations for one coordinated all-out attack on the church. But remember what verse 3 told us. A day will come when he must be set free for a short time, when his current restraints are removed. Verse 7 describes that future day. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. This battle has been described several times before. Each time, it's described in the original language as literally the battle. So Revelation is not showing us a series of battles that all happen to look remarkably similar. No, it's showing us one battle from several different angles. Chapter 16 described how Satan and his helpers gathered the kings of the whole world for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Last week we read in chapter 19, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered literally for the battle against the rider on the white horse and his army. And now chapter 20, verse 8 tells us Satan gathers the nations for, again, the battle. But we're also given two names that we haven't heard before in Revelation. Gog and Magog. Who are they? Well, they're found in Ezekiel's prophecy of the last battle. It's worth reading that sometime, Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. The same prophecy, chapter 19, was drawing on when it described birds gorging on the flesh of God's enemies. That was from Ezekiel's prophecy, and in Ezekiel's prophecy, Gog and Magog represent God's enemies. It's not clear who it was referring to particularly. Strictly speaking, Ezekiel talks about Gog of the land of Magog. 
Those may have been symbolic names even in Ezekiel's day. But certainly by the time John is writing, those names have come to represent the worldwide enemies of God and his people. Just like the ancient city of Babylon was used in previous chapters to represent the idolatry of this world. So we're missing the point if we try to locate Gog and Magog on a modern day map. Because verse 8 specifically says they are the nations in the four corners of the earth. Meaning the entire earth. So just as Babylon represents any and every idolatrous city, so Gog and Magog represent every enemy enemy that will rise up against God for this last battle. And notice, the gathered army will be like the sand on the seashore. If that sounds familiar, it should sound familiar. Back in Genesis, God promised Abraham his descendants would one day be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And today, that great people is still being gathered. The New Testament says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The full number of that people of God was symbolized earlier in Revelation as 144,000, drawn from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And until every last one of God's people has been gathered, Satan is bound. He's prevented from gathering his great army. But when God's people are gathered, then and only then will Satan be unbound to gather those who are left, who are also as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Then having shown us Satan gathering his army, look how the final verses of this passage describe the last battle and the end of Satan. Verse 9, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Throughout Revelation, the church has been described in various different ways. It's been described as golden lampstands. It's been described as a lady in the wilderness and as a city and as a bride made ready for her wedding. Here in verse 9, the church is described as a camp. It's pictured like the Israelites camped in the wilderness, surrounded by enemies. And it's also pictured here as a city that's under siege. 
That's how it often feels for God's people today in many parts of the world. And on this future day, that's how it's going to feel for God's people the world over. But notice the key factor here. This besieged city is the city that God loves. And so the last battle will hardly be a battle at all. We've seen before, each time the last battle is described, the picture is consistent. It will be worldwide, it will be short, and the lamb will win. As John watches this vision of the future, this vast, impressive army Satan has gathered is destroyed in a moment. As he watches, fire comes down from heaven and devours them. And the devil himself, who succeeded in his final great deception, does not succeed against the bride of the Lamb. Satan is thrown into the same lake of fire as his representatives, the beast and the false prophet. The text gives no indication the other two were thrown in ahead of Satan. The NIV translation seems to suggest that, but the text simply says they all end up in the same place where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Why is this passage in the Bible? It's here because you and I need to know that however much the dragon rages, however much we may feel his fury from time to time, he is down. And one day he will finally be out. His defeat was achieved at the cross. It will finally be confirmed at Christ's return. In only the third chapter of the Bible, this ancient snake, this deceiver, entered the human story. And now, in the third from last chapter of the Bible, we see him exiting before the end of the story. Satan didn't belong in the good world God created in the beginning. And he will have no part in God's new creation. The last two chapters of the Bible will describe a world free from Satan's influence. He won't be there. Bound or unbound. We can give God great thanks for that. And in the meantime, we don't need to fear the ancient snake. If we are in Christ, then Satan has no genuine power over us. And he cannot stop Christ drawing men and women to himself. He cannot stop the church being built.
Our last song reminds us the reign of sin and death is done. So let's stand and sing together. Yes, finished. The Messiah dies.